Hello and welcome to Wolf and Tune. I'm Richard Wolfie Wolf, and today our guest is Eskmo. Eskmo is an electronic music producer and the composer on hit shows like Billions for Showtime and 13 Reasons Why for Netflix. We talk about the stresses of being a touring musician, the isolation, the poor health, the careening from performance highs to ridicule, and Eskimo's transition from touring and making records to scoring to picture. And it's delightfully interesting to me that Eskimo uh, is a professional musician, but he's also a longtime practitioner of meditation and mindfulness. So, of course, we cover his training in Vipassana and also his practice in other mindfulness techniques, as well as the influence of one of my greatest influences, the Zen master and author, Thich Nhat Hanh. So we talk about the variety of ways that meditation and mindfulness have helped his creativity, his sense of well-being, his emotional harmony, as well as other aspects of his life as a professional musician and as a human being. So without further ado, here's Eskmo. Welcome, Brendan Angelides. Thank you, sir. Nice to meet you. And actually, nice my, sorry, we might actually maybe this go down a little bit. I just want to make sure I can see your eyes. Good idea. You want it might see be more it. awkward for me if I can't see your eyes. Oh, very cool. nice. There we go. I don't look into people's eyes enough, but this is a podcast, so it shouldn't oh, that, matter. Oh, that wasn't my impression so far. No? No. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you very much for coming. All thank you for having me. Eagle Rock, taking uh, some time out from your very busy schedule. Absolutely. So um, you are a composer and recording artist, and uh, let's start with the recording artist part, because I think that's really how you started your career in music, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you start making records? Um, I mean, way back was um, bands in high school, that kind of stuff. What kind of bands? Um, I mean, quote unquote band. It was a collection of, of kids. Um, at one point it was kind of a ska band, even though I did not like ska at all, but that was the, <laughs> I lived in um, kind of like the woods of Connecticut, like horses and cows and that kind of stuff. And those were a group of the kids that were playing music. Um, so I played with them and then some other friends. It was a lot of kind of random stuff. I, at that time was obsessed with this band called Primus. Mm -hmm. um, like he's what made me pick up a bass. Um, and Clay, uh, Claypool? Yeah, Les Claypool, yeah. yeah. Um, so honestly, a lot of trying to imitate him basically. On and then the bass? Some, yeah, yeah. I actually got introduced to Les Claypool um, and to uh, Prodigy um, in ninth grade, kind of at the same time. Oh. And so that kind of shifted my mindset to the idea of bass being a really, being a thing, you know? Right. Um, and then from that, flash forward into high school playing with the, the bands that had already, the seed of electronic stuff was already in there. Um, so I got like a four track and a, um, a Roland JX305, which is like a self-contained keyboard, had a little step sequencer and stuff in it. And I started making stuff in there and just found that I enjoyed being able to do that instead of having to worry about everybody else's schedules or trying to figure out when we could get together and, and all that kind of, you know, normal high school stuff. And that's kind of just what kicked it off. And I just kept on doing that thing. Um, my uh, my parents were amazing and they helped me get a, um, a Korg Triton. Um, and I basically had that with a small Akai sampler that I had to put uh, 3.5 yeah, discs into. Um, I'm and, just pointing to the Triton right behind yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's what I use, yeah. Totally, I yeah. love that thing. Yeah. and. Um, and basically, yeah, in high school as a um, 
as a uh, graduation project thing. Everybody had, you had to either write a paper or do a thing. And I decided to make an album um, with this gear. Um, and actually at that time, that was that was pre-Triton. So it was just the old Roland and this little, um, this little sampler. And he handed that in, graduated, and I basically just didn't stop from there. I, I kind of um, met other friends. Another friend a couple years later was interested in making a record label. So we put out the stuff that I was making as the first record, and which then I got introduced to somebody in England and they put out another one of mine. Um, and it kind of just went from there. I didn't, I didn't have any interest in going to school at that point. I knew just from high school that I wasn't totally stoked on much of the curriculum. Certain ones I was really stoked on, uh, you know, math, uh, science, those kind of things were my strong suit. Uh, but art and music and, and all that kind of stuff is where I really thrived on. So I basically just focused on that 100% and just never looked back. So it's interesting you mentioned math because a lot of times I get comments, oh, you're a musician, so you have to be good in math. It's, mm. it's such a misnomer. Oh yeah, uh, tremendously. Yeah, every musician I know, you know, Paul McCartney was an expert in math. I don't think so. Right, right. So these records that you were putting out, these were dance records? Yeah, the first few, um, I mean, quote unquote dance, yeah. Right. But they were electronic and they were repetitive. So you could call them, <laughs> call, call them dance. Um, they were kind of more influenced around uh, drum and bass and breaks at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them, yeah, was with a label in Connecticut. And another one, the next one was, that one moved a bit more into understanding what actually kind of dance stuff was happening in England. And um, with a couple of different labels out there that were primarily breaks, which is, you know, stuff between 125 BPM to 135-ish or so. And, you know, kind of drums and bass, but slowed down, you know? Yeah, yeah. The, the breaks that you're talking about, um, you say 120 to 125 BPM. Now, the breaks that I'm familiar with were hip hop, funk, Breaks. Mm, totally. You know, right? Same exact, and, but sped up. Sped up. Yeah. So you guys sped up those breaks. Yeah, yeah. And sped up even more would be drum and bass. So it's kind of in between. Right. Yeah. Because originally they were probably at what, 85 BPM or something yeah, like that. It's exactly. really slow. Yeah. Well, relatively they were slow. Totally. And you guys sped, sped them up. Mm -hmm. And you were on Ninja Tune? Yeah. So from there, um, uh, I released. A couple of those records, and then I um, had met somebody uh, at Planet Mew, and I, I put out uh, an album or a single through them. And around that time, I had met um, Amon Tobin, and we did a thing together, um, which I just ended up putting out on my um, on my label that I had made. Made a label in two thousand or seven or eight mm -hmm. called um, Ancestor, and I released a couple of my own things to that, and that's kind of. It was funny. I, I once I started to just do my own thing and try to stop um, appeasing dance labels in a certain way, things kind of opened up for me because there's a very particular um, mindset and sonic aesthetic and structure specifically to like 12 inch dance records. It's like a very particular thing, you know. Um, and it was kind of exciting for me, but I I never really um, overly clicked with it. Um, and because of that, new doors started to open up. I met Amon. And because Amon and I had done this thing, then the Ninja Tune connection happened. He introduced me to them. Um, and I had an album at that time. And yeah, I ended up signing uh, a deal with them for that. So tell us more about, except 
not everybody knows who Amon Tobin is. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about him. The only reason, by the way, I know who he is, I mean, I was first introduced to him, is because on machine that Native Instruments makes, right? It's a mm -hmm. drum machine. Mm -hmm. They had Amon Tobin presets or whatever. And oh, cool. Were, and yeah, they were yeah. amazing. Oh, cool. So then I said, I got to find out who this guy is. But tell, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I only know so much. Uh, but yeah, Brazilian guy who who moved to England when he was younger. And uh, he first started releasing music as Cujo, I think. And then it, he uh -huh. started releasing stuff as Amon Tobin, uh -huh. um, which is just his name. Um, and I had found his music originally in Connecticut when I was, uh, I don't even remember what age. But it was one of those purchases, I think it was in a, whatever pre-Borders is, it was like some, whatever those ones, it's not strawberries, but we had a few stores like that out there. And I just picked it up because the artwork was cool in the front and I ended up loving it. Um, and how did you guys get together? How did you meet? Um, I actually played in a NASA space hangar right before him um, at a, I guess a rave type of thing, like an official rave. So you were in, a DJ? I was doing a live uh, live thing, yeah. Because of the band thing and the keyboards and stuff before in high school, I never had the mindset to DJ because I just didn't really understand it, to be honest. Not that there was anything anti about it. I just didn't think of it that way because my understanding was Prodigy, who I had seen with a bunch of keyboards on stage, or at that time, you know, 95 or whatever, uh, picturing Moby also playing keyboards. Right. Um, so I just kind of kept going that way. So any of the live stuff I was doing from 2003 and onward was always with gear on stage and doing live stuff. Um, so I had done a live set before he played at that um, that NASA oh, okay. event. So you did a lot of live gig? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, okay, that was like your main source of income at that time? Yeah, well, at that time it was random, but yeah, it was like, that's how I was paying rent and stuff for sure. Um, and I actually handed him a, a blank CD. It was ridiculous. It was like, there was literally nothing. I didn't even write anything on it. There was music on it, but I was like, I know you probably don't even listen to CDs if there is writing on them, but this is blank. Uh -huh. You won't even remember this. But then somehow we actually stayed in contact and then started working on stuff together. And that's when he introduced me to them and everything. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. So then you put out this record with Alvin Tobin. Mm -hmm. You seem to have been on a lot of different labels. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a handful of them. Yeah, but not, Ninja Tune was famous, and I guess it still is. It's doing pretty well, right? Yeah, yeah it's still going. Yep, they have amazing break beats on there. Yeah, 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 a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, um, and right before that, so the 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 first one was the smaller label named Downbeat, which isn't the jazz right jazz thing. Downbeat. Um, there's another one, Cyberfunk, uh, Vertical Sound, with another small breaks ones. Then uh, Planet Mew, and right after that, I think was I had a a, a remix on Warp. And then Warp put out um, a single of mine, and then the Ninja Tune thing happened. Um, and then from Ninja Tune, I've released um, a few more just on my own label, Ancestor. Um, yeah, up to the present. So, what's it like having your own label? What do you do? What does that mean, having your own label? Honestly, uh, for me, it's very minimal. It's I could be doing a whole bunch of strategic things that <laughs> that I'm not. It's basically just a this day and age is an easy way to just, I can make something and just put it out immediately if I want to, or I can methodically plan out a whole release. But it's just a really easy way, most importantly, to just keep all my own rights and keep my stuff. Um, in my mindset right now, I could be saying something different, you know, down, down the line, but the power that you keep 
um, the power that you feel by keeping your own rights and keeping your music is really awesome. And I tend to have a different psychological experience when I release things with labels and when I do on my own. Um, I'm forever grateful for the labels um, putting my stuff out and right. and believing in me, you know? But I think you always, as an artist, you can create a narrative of how you think they might save you in some way or do some big thing for you um, when it's not really the case, you know? And so usually the times that I've released on my own label, um, I just know that I have to do it myself. And I end up doing stuff that feels a bit more courageous or different. There's like a different thing, a whole process happens. You don't have somebody else saying no right. or kind of guiding the process a little bit, you know? Mm. Um, so it's kind of just an, another outlet for me as well. So when you say releasing, what does that mean? You go through uh, DistroKid or some? Yeah, yeah. Actually on the last one, yeah, I ended up using DistroKid, but there's a number of different, you know, digital ways you can do it or, um, Vinyl is easy now to also just, like, I just printed up a hundred for this last um, release I released a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was a collaboration with an Icelandic friend of mine, Kira Kira. Um, and we just made a hundred of them and individual orders come through Bandcamp. We just mail them out. It's very like homegrown, simple kind of style. Um, Cause I feel like I'm getting enough. Um, it feels good enough to just work on the music and put it out in a really simple way also with all the the scoring that I'm doing right now, that I personally don't feel the need to have some big crazy machine behind it to do a, you know, really tactical release in some type of way, you know? Right. Um, so for me, it just feels like a really fluid. So how process. do you promote it? How do you let people know that you release something? Honestly, on this last one, it was very minimal. It was literally Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and send it to friends. And for that right now, I'm totally fine. On the next, my next solo album, I'm gonna be, putting in a bit more, you know, some normal PR stuff into it and just kind of coming up with creative ways to kind of let people know. Cause there's a, there's a, um, a lot of white noise out there. You know, there's just so much content, so much music, so many videos, so all that stuff that you really do have to do a thing that pierces that cloud in a certain kind of way. Um, and there's a number of different tactics you can do to do that. Um, this one was just a kind of a gentle thing. Right, but you're saying your next one you plan to have a more uh, strategic so. release. Yeah. So what does that mean? You're gonna do photos. You're gonna do videos. Oh, there's always photos. Always just, photos. Yeah, you just need something. Yeah, to be able to just, yeah, just the visual component of it is always important. Okay. Um, I mean, this last one it was ridiculous. We just went out to the beach and used I don't even know what it's called. It's like this silver insulation stuff. We just wrapped it around ourselves and got random crazy shots. Mm -hmm. um, Who's we, ourselves? So you're a solo artist. Who is who else? No, is this there? is the collaboration uh, with my friend Kira Kira. Oh, um, okay. So we just literally had a friend come out with us and take photos of us wearing this crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, there's always there's always a business side to it to a degree of like, okay, what I want to, how do I want to release this? Is it going to be more art based? Is it going to be photos? Is it going to be what's the language you want to use and to um, the narrative that you kind of want to build for the release? You know. And you're on social media. You mentioned Twitter, Instagram. So yeah, do you do that just, yourself? Just or? barely. Uh, yeah, I do it myself, yep. So that's a, that's a lot of it to keep up with, right? Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole psychological thing, for sure. When you're scoring, do you keep up with your social media? Um, yeah, in some ways. When I'm actually working on the stuff, not tons. It right. kind of ebbs and flows, honestly. My right. my wife constantly nudges me to stay more engaged with it. Yeah. Um, 
to be completely honest, there's a big part of my brain that just does not want to do any of that stuff whatsoever. Sure. Um, Because there is a thing that happens. There's like a, you know, you get the dopamine hit. There's a whole response from it and whatever you you associate value to it and numbers and especially when you start comparing things and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a tricky road, which doesn't mean it's all bad in itself. You just have to be really conscious of that as you're Absolutely. Engaging with it, you know. Yeah, there's a, <clears throat> an author who just uh, released a book called Digital Minimalism. And he's saying that in the history of mankind, uh, when we evolved, we are never used to having so much input from other people's minds. Right. We've always yeah. had solitude, time. You mm-hmm. know, you had a certain amount of input from other people's minds, right? But when you weren't socially interactive, you know, with another person or a group of people, mm-hmm. or you weren't reading a book, you didn't have this input. But when you're on social media, you're getting all this input from other people's minds, oh, and yeah. our minds are not evolved for that yet. Oh, yeah. So that's a big cause of anxiety, he's saying. Huge. You know, huge, right? Yeah, the, the term uh, compare and despair <clears throat> is a big one, you know? Oh, I've never heard that, but I like it. Yeah, it's a it's a thing. Um, you really have to be careful of that. I think honestly, no matter what level you're at, you're, there's that can still be happening. I'm sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. So you had these records, and you're about to continue to make records. How mm-hmm. did you transition into scoring? Um. I'm a part of a group called the Echo Society in Los Angeles, and it's right. like a group of um, composers and s- people kind of doing that kind of stuff that got together and started uh, putting on shows in 2013. And that's like uh, orchestral meets electronic in really unique spaces, and we kind of transform the space and present a show. And um, that started to really influence my my sound. So t- the Ninja Tune album was in 2010. Um, I put out something on my own in 2012 and 13. We started doing those shows and it really kind of opened up a different side of my brain and something to explore. And the album that I put out in 2015 called Soul was really influenced by these Echo Society shows, which were a bit more orchestral and all that. Right. And the album was a bit more kind of cinematic-y sounding for lack of a better term. Um, uh-huh. And it was really scary to put it out because I knew it was different than what people had expected from me. Um, and you know, I still very much stood behind it, but it was admittedly different. Um, and so because it was different, my perception of this is that the, a bunch of the US shows were actually kind of tough. Um, and the European shows were actually going great. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a chunk where I was like, man, I'm really, I'm just feeling tired by this this tour. And it's really, from my perspective, um, the, the flights and all that kind of stuff, being far away from home, being far away from loved ones, Usually when you come back home when you're touring a lot, people don't think you're home. So people don't reach out to you. And you, it turns into this strange thing of like coming back home and you feel a little confused of what you're supposed to do. And you kind of reach out to a bunch of friends because you need connection and you wanna, you know? It's also really hard to to develop a strong, healthy relationship in my opinion. People do it for sure, but for me it was really challenging. Um, and I'm also not in a place um, where I'm, like partying and any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, if I was 20 years old and doing that, yeah. it probably would have been amazing. Yeah. But at this point in my life, I really wasn't totally stoked on it. So mm-hmm. that touring um, acted as like an instigator, something that really drove me to find some other type of um, possibility. So putting out that album that was more orchestral was a way for me to really take a scary chance and be like, what if I can put this out and maybe some some scoring stuff could come out of it. 
Oh, really? You had that intention when you yeah, made yeah. this? Absolutely. Ah. Yeah. Um, which is a really big gamble because at a certain point, right around when the album had dropped and stuff, there was moments where I was, it was frightening financially. You know, I was like, this is a, this is kind of scary. You know what I mean? Why? Just- we Did it cost you a lot of money? No, no, no. Just, it wasn't- uh, Oh, I, I wasn't see. generating kind of income from okay. in the way I thought I might be able to, you know? Okay. Um, really? So you had been generating income from the records that you were putting out? Um, not so much just licensing, but all, but touring. I touring see. is a big I thing. See. Once you, okay. you get into the touring kind of zone, you kind of rely on it as like, okay, okay. I, I got to go out and do whatever it is. Let's say eight shows this month and that's going to equal this, you know? Um, and that became a bit more wishy-washy and nebulous for me. Um, you know, I, I'm really curious to, to get, before we leave and get into the uh, transition totally. into the scoring, which is about to happen, I, I can tell. Totally. Um, because I have a feeling you would discover through uh, this, this process. Um, you mentioned you're talking about being popular, having good nights and then bad nights. But um, wh how do you explain somebody like Avicii Right, who is at the top of the heap in terms of the field that you were, you were, you are in when you're touring and when you're, you know, performing as a musician like that, and his young guy, tremendously successful, and he commits suicide. Hmm. How do you explain that? And obviously, having bad nights as a failure was not one of his problems. He mm. he had always sold out. He always had enthusiastic audiences. Mm. How do you explain that? I mean, I, I certainly don't want to speak about from his experience because I, I certainly don't know him or know anything right. about what, what right. transpired. Right. But I know it was a human thing. Um, he might have potentially just or anyone like that right they may be on stage feeling like they're having a horrible night and it could be because of um if i were to project myself into that you know mm -hmm. maybe there's there's love stuff happening there's some family stuff happening you know managers even if you have you know a hundred thousand people at your thing like why don't we have 120 uh -huh. like we should have hit 120 something's not something's not right here you know um I think sometimes it, it boils down to like a, a human thing that gets magnified by an industry that's just like, just churning out things, you know, content and making things. And I think that probably happens in any field. You know, if you're an architect, there's probably similar things. You go down a path really deep and you're, or if you're in the fashion industry, you're going down really deep, you probably have a lot of the similar anxieties and, and pains and all that kind of stuff, but it might right. just get magnified. Um, I know there's a lot of, in that side of things, um, in the giant arena touring electronic stuff, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of late nights, there's a lot of lack of sleep, there's a lot of all sorts of things, you know? So from my, you know, I was nowhere near the level that that he he was at, but I could see where paths go. And I think, um, yeah, it's easy to get drawn, like uh, swept up into it, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so you're, you mentioned being used to a level of success and then other people expecting you to be even more successful. Oh yeah, no matter what it is, totally. So we had Ricky Bell in here from New Edition. Whitney Houston. You know? Yeah, we were just talking about Whitney Houston, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had Ricky Bell in here from Bell Biv DeVoe in New Edition mm. saying, you know, you get, you get used to a certain, the crowd roaring at a certain volume mm -hmm. and then the volume goes down mm -hmm. and that's depressing. Oh yeah. 
Totally. So or you're staring at the one person who's just staring at you and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I actually had a show in, um, in uh, Colorado at this place called Red Rocks. And um, I was opening up for another larger act and I could just sense, obviously the majority of the people I'm looking at are there for the larger, for the larger band. Right. And um, I remember just seeing like a whole bunch of people seemed like they were enjoying themselves. It's a large venue and right. it was kind of maybe half full at that point or whatever. Right. And there was this one guy, this this young kid, and he was just sitting there, just just sitting there like this, just mm-hmm. flipping Flip, me off. Flipping you off. Yeah, just the whole the whole second half of my performance, just wow. doing that. And um just yelling, get off the stage, you know. Is this I can smile about I was smiling about it later that night right. for about half hour after that. It was right. it was funny. Um but it was amazing to see what that brings up in you, you know. You could have a whole bunch of people enjoying themselves and right. just focusing on this one thing and right. it could completely change your perspective on all of it, you know? And I think that same process, whatever it is, can just get magnified times a billion, you know? No matter where you're at in your life, I think it's possible to have that kind of stuff happening. So, get, you know, I'm sorry for jumping around a little oh, no, bit and pulling you back into this. It's all part of the this. same thing. Yeah. I, I want to get into the psychology, the mindset of being on stage and performing. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that you're constantly... Looking at the audience, you're constantly trying to feel, you know, uh, are you succeeding? Are you getting through? Mm-hmm. Constantly some judging Some nights more yourself. than ever. Uh, some, nights, some nights more than others. So some you just, honestly, are, you don't even, you just sense that it's going well and you mm-hmm. don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. And then randomly, you know, just being a human, you kind of like, if it's not quite going well, what if I do this? Then I can sense people are having more fun. But why is that one person sitting there? <laughs> you know flipping you off yeah or or they could even honestly just be sitting there just staring why aren't they moving why aren't they enjoying themselves you know uh-huh. it's a really funny thing that happens and i think it changes night to night and depends on how much you've slept and and all that kind of stuff and it's just part of it it's like it's a it's a it's a really lucky thing to be on stage and have people even attend and be paying attention to you um so that becomes part of it too it can be you yeah. know who do you think you are even even having a tough time with any of this you know um, it can be it can be a funny process. So it's kind of like the imposter complex. Like- oh yeah, yeah, that's part of it. And then usually maybe there's some part of you that that can kick into overdrive and be like, I'm definitely not an imposter. Like I've, you know, I'm ruling the stage. Whatever it is, you know, I find the times that the ones I've enjoyed the most is you're really in the moment and really um, just kind of connecting to what you're hoping to give and whoever relates to it relates to it. Other people don't, then it's all good, you know. Right. Right. So do you do a lot of the second guessing after the performance? Like, how did I do? I shouldn't have done this or judging your performance. Yeah. It's never, yeah. It's never usually in it. It's not in it. Yeah. If I see myself mess up, I actually love some of that stuff. That was actually part of what I was playing with on stage is so, um, what it kind of turned into because I was doing the live thing, you know, I'd bring up my laptop and at first it was just keyboards and samplers and then it turned into a laptop. And then at one point, two laptops, one of them controlling the visuals, I would be controlling the visuals from my keyboards and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, the stuff I was putting out around 2008, 9, 10, the Ninja Tune stuff and right before then, I was doing a whole bunch of field recording and I would be recording all sorts of random sounds for like the snare sound and, mm-hmm. and other kind of mm-hmm. crunchy bits and stuff. So I started doing that on stage, um, which then turned into me like going dumpster diving before every show and I'd just try to find like uh, janitor closets or literally garbage cans or whatever it was and try to find stuff that made sound right. and then bring that on stage. Um, Cause I'd have a mic set up 
and uh, using Ableton for looping and everything. And I'd play all that um, junk on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why did I just start talking about that? I totally lost my train of thought. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting though, <laughs> because you do this whole- Oh, the, the doubting. So yeah. the so with all that stuff, I actually loved when little mess ups would happen because I'd be playing all this random junk. If something break or something fall apart or a loop doesn't work quite right, um, I start playing something. The improv nature of it was something I was really excited about and to kind of play with those spaces where like, ooh, this feels wrong and uncomfortable right now. Right. Let's shift it into a place where I can actually make something out of it. Right. Um, that was actually really exciting for me. So usually, um, luckily, I wasn't having a lot of those thoughts on stage. It was usually like, you know, after you right. leave the venue and, you know, you're in a hotel room by yourself and you're like, yeah. Yeah. It's when, when you're playing, when you're in the music, you're totally immersed in it. Yeah, yeah. And you're high from that mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons and then the music stops mm-hmm. and then all this stuff crashes down yeah yeah and you start that's one of the things that crashes down you start yeah did i do a good job totally. by the way when you say playing junk you literally mean you're you're making music out of like water bottles that you found yeah, yeah. and you paper plastic and, everything yeah, so. yeah pvc pipe um one of my favorites was finding you know, like the water cooler jugs, the five oh, gallon big yeah. plastic ones. Wow. Those are great. Anytime yeah. I'd find one, if I was ever, it, when I, it happened a number of times, been able to find two of them it was so good because theatrically you can smash them together and it's a pretty nice sound. Now you have a meditation practice mm-hmm. and we're going to get into that <clears throat> in granular detail, but just out of curiosity, were you practicing at this point in your life yet? Um, no, I was having people telling me that they assumed I did and and then if I said I didn't, that I should have. So it's more like it's just more reflection in the universe, being like, "Hey, you should think about meditating." And I was like, eh, "Okay, someday." <laughs> it was more of that kind of stuff. Why did they think you should be or you were? Um, I think people just from my demeanor, they assumed that I was meditating, whatever that might mean. Like people assume I'm vegan, but I'm not. I don't know what that means, but it's more of a their perspective, you know. And projection um or if other folks that were meditating it was something like oh you you're not oh, i think you'd like it that's why yeah okay. yeah and these other folks are they musicians or just other um yeah musicians or friends or yeah that said that you would like it because you mm-hmm. have this calm tranquil demeanor yeah and um i always tended tended to um, even before the, the meditation stuff, I mean, there was a phase in my life where I was reading so many self-help books. Like, I think I just kind of like the idea of going in and seeing why things work the way they did. Um, and I think at that time, some friends probably saw that and might've mentioned it, you know, in passing that you might like this too, because you can kind of see, just see yourself as you are, you know? So the self-help books were because you had a need to balance your life or? Yeah, yeah, all it? sorts of stuff. Right. relationships falling apart, right. feeling crazy on the inside and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had a, a intense in certain ways growing up um, situation that just just kind of led to, you know, challenges that can kind of help you open up later on, you know? Um, and part of it was that for sure. So you were never into alcohol or drugs in a big way in terms oh, of- Oh, no, I was. You were? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, from like um, 18 to 22, or so, 23, yeah. What were you into? Well, everything. Yeah, pretty much pretty much anything, to be honest. It was, 
it, it went full on to the point where I just saw that I was very much uh, hurting myself intentionally. Right. Well, 18 to 23, those are experimental ages. I mean, yeah, yeah. right? College and people experiment. Mm -hmm. You weren't in college, you were performing. So. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was when I was starting to kind of perform, right. just barely. But you were making music, that's what you, yeah, were, yeah. that was your occupation. Uh, occupation that I wasn't really making money from though. But that's that's what I was doing. I had a full-time job and stuff, you know, I was just doing on the side. Oh, you did, you had a full-time yeah, yeah, yeah. job. Yeah, I wasn't able to start surviving off of, of music until 2008, I think, something like that, okay. 2009. So how did you stop? I mean, did you stop, how did you stop and did you stop completely like, completely not touching a drink or not touching it um no 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 i i stopped um everything except for weed which then took two more years of just gradual to the point where like oh i don't actually enjoy this anymore why am i even doing that? i just feel paranoid so i think i stopped smoking when i was like 25 um and drinking slowed down a bunch then i basically had to move away from my environment too because i was in you know in rural connecticut and i ended up moving about an hour and a half away also rural Connecticut, but not the same group of people and everything. Um, yeah, full-time job, just focused on music. I need to do this. It was kind of a choice of like, am I actually going to do this or not? And I had to just completely focus on music and work. Um, and I still drank randomly, but no kind of crazy issues or anything right. until um, uh, about five years ago, um, my biological dad passed from drinking. And that was kind of a thing to make me think about just not even having that as much at all anymore. So nowadays I'm having like a glass of wine every two weeks kind of. Right, so you mm. still have a glass of wine every two weeks just to... Yeah, every two weeks or even a month right now. Right. Once a month. Well, that's pretty amazing that you could- Usually some... around Italian food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing that you could be so deep into it for four or five years like that and just stop. Yeah, because- it... willpower or- Yeah, it got to the point where I distinctly remember saying, fuck you, Brennan when when i was doing something mm -hmm. and that was so obvious to me and luckily i had enough a little bit of awareness like that's not right there's something going on there and it relates to some other shit i need to actually i need to change this dynamic and get out of here so sliding back into the scoring mm -hmm. you were about to tell us how you got into that well basically like f f it was from then of saying i need to change all this stuff right mm -hmm. in connecticut mm -hmm. When I moved to California, I drove out, took a month, drove out here in a Toyota Camry. I just put everything I could in the trunk and basically was just had been super solidly focused on working part-time jobs and just music, music, music to the point of 2015, doing a bunch of the shows and having that kind of challenging point of being like, you know, this isn't, this isn't really for me right now. You know, I know other people love it for certain reasons and stuff. And I would love to go back and do touring, but specifically on my time. You know, like I would love to do a month every three years right. <laughs> or two years. Um, when I put out the album, um, luckily I had um, through the Echo Society, the, the orchestral thing I was mentioning right. to you about, at our second show, we had a guest from Iceland come. Her name is Kira Kira. From where? Iceland. Oh, right, right. And um, we connected on working on a track there together. Um, and she invited me to come out to Iceland to uh, do a show at Iceland Airwaves, which is a festival out there. Mm -hmm. And when we were out there, we actually spent 15 days one day uh, recording in a friend's studio that we rented um, and kind of just started a whole album thing. And um, from that, or when I was out there in Iceland, I met 
um, Bob Boylan uh, from NPR. Tiny no Desk kidding. Couches. Yeah, yeah. Um, at a ping pong uh, tournament, basically, in um, uh, Yonsi's basement. Uh, Yonsi from uh, Sigaros. Um, and so he's great, and he does go to Iceland and and make shows for his podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he he was awesome. Yeah. Um, but we connected that night, and then I ended up. Um, I don't know if I had sent it to him or somebody else, but the the album had come out shortly after that. So that was when I was in Iceland. It was at the end of November two thousand fourteen. Right. And the new album came out in March, and Bob got his hands on it, and um, I ended up doing a Tiny Desk concert. And he ended up putting a video up on, you know, his on his his site for it. Right. Um, and then a showrunner, uh, Brian Koppelman in New York, was um, listening to I guess all songs oh. considered. Um, yeah. I forgot which ex exact one he was. All songs considered. Yeah. He had been listening to, but he heard that on there, and they literally just got in touch in kind of mid 2015, just as I was having all this, <laughs> you know, existential stuff of just like oh man what am i doing what how's this i'm waiting for something to click here i just did something really scary by putting out an album that had a certain sonic aesthetic but i don't know if that was the right move and the whole thing and he got in touch and said um you want to have a skype call about uh, scoring a tv show you know right. and we had a, a skype call with him and his partner uh, david levine um and they just asked if i would be into it if i knew how to do it and um you know 20 minute long skype call and I thought I totally messed it up and wasn't mm -hmm. sure, you know, but they asked, do you know how to do this? And I was like, yeah, totally. And I had no idea whatsoever. Uh -huh. um, but I knew from the Echo Society thing I was doing and the other composers that were, you know, they're doing proper films and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that I'd be able to get some help and advice uh -huh. from them, you know? Um, and then, yeah, they hired me and I basically just dove headfirst into trying to figure out what what I was doing and wow. asking my buddies for guidance on how to do it. What a great chain of events, huh? Yeah, yeah. From the, the Echo Society to Iceland to yeah, Bob yeah. Boylan and the Tiny Desk Concerts, yeah, Brian yeah. Koppelman. Absolutely. You know, Brian Koppelman's background is in music. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know Yeah, his, his dad. His dad. Right, yeah. Yeah, I made records for his dad. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And I met him. Yeah. Cool. When he was starting out as a screenwriter. Oh, amazing. That's an amazing story, how you were uh, discovered like that. Yeah, very, very, very lucky. Very grateful. And that. so, did they send you a pilot to score, or how did you prove that you could do it? I actually, I, I sent a reel in a bunch of different music, but they had heard the album, and they basically, which is also very lucky, they're like, "Can you just do your thing for the show?" Um, which was awesome, you know. Um, I think I actually got hired before I saw the pilot, but I didn't write any stuff for it. What was the music in the pilot? Did they get um, it from other scores? Yeah, it was a bunch okay. of just random stuff, yeah. A temp track. Yeah, yeah, a bunch okay. of temp track. Okay. Um, but I didn't go off of that at all. They said, don't, just right. ignore it, you know. Right. Um, so do you score the picture? They send you the picture and you score to that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the first one. I just know it was messy. Like in terms of like my file organization, like how I was doing it was, <laughs> yeah, totally messy. I learned a lot since then for sure. Uh -huh. um, and I think actually they just had a lot of, they, faith. I don't know. Might've been crazy on their part to just kind of hire me and see what happens, but that's what happened. But you score, this is your first time scoring the picture. Yeah, I'd actually done something uh, right before that with my friend, Rob Simonson. He's one of the other guys in, in Echo. Yeah. He brought me in for an indie feature uh, called The Cleanse, which is basically like Gremlins meets uh, something else. Right. And I had, but that was a, a collaboration with him and then one other composer. So I had a certain amount of stuff um, that I wrote for that, but it's a very different thing. We hired a small, 
um, string ensemble and it was a very different type of aesthetic. And I did maybe, you know, seven cues for the whole movie type of thing, but I kind of got a sense of how it worked at least. Right. Um, but this is the proper f- actually first time of like, here's the thing, here's the deadline, good luck. And we're talking about billions, right? Yeah, yeah. And they left it up to you. You say, here's the, the episode, score it and send it to us. Mm-hmm. And then I'd send it and then, yeah, revisions, you know, they'd have thoughts and- They have notes. I'm sure the, I'm sure the first episode had notes on every single cue, if not, I'm sure probably all of them did. And what was your reaction when you get the, got these notes? Depended on what the note was probably. Um, I think I did, I went back and actually checked this recently. I think uh-huh. I did like 34 versions of it. Oh. And they ended up using the temp. Um, temp meaning not your? Yeah, they used, they used the music <laughs> that was originally in it. Um, That's called temp love, right? Yeah, They get used love. to seeing a certain uh, picture with a certain uh, piece of music. Oh, yeah. And they can't. Uh, Which is understandable. I would probably do the same thing. If right. I directed a film and I had right. some temp that I loved, it'd be tough to you know, have someone else come in and there and write something even better. Right. So I that was the first it. episode when they had temp love. Yeah, right. only for a couple though. They right. actually um, kind of right away went right into it. Um, I wrote them a few different versions of like the opening credits, which is just you know a fifteen second long thing, um, and it kind of clicked right away. They were just kind of down for me to do some weird electronic stuff. Um, and looking back now, I mean, I definitely learned a lot more about getting out of the way and how to do things sonically that help the dialogue and don't intrude and all that kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. You're gonna try to do less next time around, or you mean like nowadays? If I were to, yeah, do that, if yeah. I were to do that same first episode, I probably or first season, or, or, or yeah, right. even the yeah, the whole first, probably definitely the first episode. I'd be embarrassed to open up logic sessions, but um, okay. yeah, yeah, I think less, but then also even just ways to trick. There's ways to get your music in there more fully while also not competing with dialogue, frequency range stuff, or yeah, kind of just playing with it a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit of, so that's the show Billions. Mm-hmm. And then you also did 13 Reasons Why. Yep. So yeah. I think, I'm f- I don't totally remember the timing of all this, but mm-hmm. I did one season of Billions. Um, and then, so I just finished up my fourth season a month ago. Um, so yeah, after the first season, then, um, uh, season Kent, who's a music supervisor, right. she had um, seen the Echo Society stuff and she knew me from that. And um, Natalie Hayden, who was working at Paramount, had seen my Billion stuff. And so they, I think both of them threw me as an option in the hat for a composer for 13 Reasons Why. Right. Um, and when I, I, th- I had heard about it um, from my agent and wasn't really sure what to make of it. I knew it was a book. I knew that Selena Gomez was attached, but I didn't really know anything else about it. You know, uh-huh. I just knew it was a, you know, intense teenage story about suicide. You know, uh-huh. um, and in my mind, coming off of Billions, I, I honestly was thinking I want to do, I want to do sci-fi or fantasy or some crazy, sound designy, next level nutso thing. You know, um, but then after reading the script and seeing the pilot and meeting Brian Yorkey, the the showrunner. Um, I thought it was actually, it was really strongly done. I, th- I thought it was pretty rad. And immediately, as soon as I saw the pilot, I had stuff coming out of me, um, little motifs and ideas and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And similar thing, I went in to meet him. We got along well. Um, I think he really liked that I mentioned Peter Gabriel because um, that was, mm-hmm. for some reason, one of the things that popped out to me that I would want to kind of infuse into the show in some subtle ways. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and luckily got hired for that too. And then that's when I hired Sylvan and <laughs> and needed uh -huh. extra help and everything. Uh -huh. And yeah, I've done that now for Sylvan, three seasons. Sylvan is Sylvan Kaufman, who's is your my assistant. Yeah, your yeah. assistant who used to be my student. Yep. years ago, a very talented, wonderful person. Yeah, he's awesome. He saved my life. <laughs> so, so you hired him when you started with thirteen. Yeah, because I needed extra help for sure. I saw the amount of workload that was going on to billions just in itself, and I was like, okay, if I'm doing two shows and they're going to happen at the same time. Oh boy. Yeah, I really need help. Specifically, um, at least I'm, I'm this, I've done seven seasons now for both. Um, and I may be saying something different later, um, but I, I want to be able to write all my own stuff. So Syl has come to help do everything else, you know, <laughs> prepping sessions, doing a whole bunch of different amazing stuff, uh, stems and all that. Um, and he allows me to explore creative ideas that I might not be able to put time into if I had to do a bunch of other stuff, you know? And I, I want to, continue doing that where I can, I think it's a common thing in the composing world where you might have multiple people doing some ghostwriting for you or even, not even ghostwriting, but they get credits and stuff, right. um, which I'm open to, but at least at this point right now, having sales mainly just to get them involved in the whole process and helping out. Oh, and I, I can relate to, you know, you're the artist, right? So when you're composing, you're really, it's the same as performing when you're the artist, really, mm -hmm. right? Totally. It's, it's your vision, your artistry that's being expressed totally yeah you know, i noticed that can you know going from being a record producer where you're not the artist and the cool thing about composing is that all of a sudden you know you were always an artist but i was a record producer and then became an artist when, as a composer mm. i can totally relate mm -hmm. so you, that's a lot of pressure though i mean two shows at the same time yeah and yeah. it's an and they're both an hour long yeah, uh, hour or long. 45 or 50 minutes or something like yeah, that? Yeah, 55. And um, how much time do you have to score an episode, let's say, of Billions? Uh, for Billions, it fluctuated a bit, but in general, I'd say it's safe to say every two weeks um, and 13 Reasons Why every week. So I was having both of them was, was pretty real, for so, sure. Okay, so that's it's very, I mean, it's a lot of stress, right? I mean, it's a yeah. lot of pressure. Yeah. Even Even though you've been doing it, and it's much, it's easier now, right? The second and third seasons are much easier than the first and the second. Oh season. yeah, yeah. When it, the second season of Billions and the first of, when they were both happening, I was like, oh God, oh God, oh God. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much every day. So so now we're gonna circle back to your meditation mm -hmm. and people were telling you, you would you would enjoy it. But what made you decide to actually take the plunge and get involved? Um, the plunge actually was, I wanna say 2012. Mm -hmm. 2011, mm -hmm. I forgot at this point. Um, but my plunge actually was going to Vipassana. Um, so I went in a 10 day silent meditation retreat in Joshua Tree. Um, honestly had meditated a tiny bit before that. Um, really what sporadic. was your motivation? What made you make that? That's a big commitment, 10 days. Yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of into some crazy, like uh, exploratory, you know, adventure -y stuff. Like later that year, I went to, you know, for the Mayan calendar date, December 21st, 2012, I went to Egypt and played at the pyramids just because it was a crazy experience and just trying to huh. do that type of thing. Huh. I think just really into the idea of what might come up if I were to sit with myself for 10 days. Wow. Yeah. Um, How was it? Oh, it was tremendous. It was amazing. Um, it was definitely one of the most important things I've done in my life, No, hands down. No question. Um, what was the name of the the place? Um, it's a just a, a chain of of places um, 
that are that this guy Goenka, um, uh-huh. uh, his yeah, yeah. technique and style. Um, but basically, they're it's free. You know, they they give you room and board, they feed you, um, and you can just donate at the end if you want. And all the centers, from my understanding, they're all across the globe, and they're just they're built and made by former students that just kind of fall in love with the practice and like they want to share it with other people, so they they help out. You know. Um, and the process was infuriating at times. I was, I was pissed off. I was laughing. I was crying. Every single everything came up. Um, and the general basic thing is just to sit with what you're feeling. Sit by yourself. You pretty much. I might be messing up the numbers here a little bit, but you wake up around four thirty every day, four o'clock, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think you meditate for eleven hours a day, off and on in chunks. Right. Um, and the first three days, you are just focusing on the breath coming out of your nose, okay. on your upper lip. So you're concentrating. Yeah, you're just focusing on that for the first three, just to get your mind. It's just to make you infuriated, <laughs> um, and it's just to kind of like you know bring the focus, bring the focus for the first three, and then after you're basically doing body scanning for the rest of the time. Um, so starting on day four, you're you're doing that same thing of observing the sensation on your upper lip this time now with your whole entire body and you just slowly, slowly, slowly scan the outside of your body up and down. If you mess up, start again, right. mess up, start again. Right. Um, and you do that for the rest of the time. And then on the last day, I think um, you can scan your whole body at once uh, for those that want to try it. Um, and yeah, it was really profound. It was amazing. It was the first time that I had ever observed, um, I think it was about day five or six, so day four, I was furious, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh God, this is so annoying. And they, th- there's basically no leader. There's no anything. They have a, um, you know, like a boom box or something where they're playing these tapes, these old tapes where he's just kind of guiding the process. There's no, there's no mention of gods or goddesses or any type of anything. It's just yourself and your breathing. Um, and the general gist is these things called sankaras, which essentially are these like, you know, these, the way I understood it, it could be anything from like a crack in the cement on the sidewalk to the Grand Canyon inside of ourselves that are um, based on our levels of attachment. So throughout your whole entire life, um, you have attachments to person, place, or thing, or idea, or concept, whatever it is. And the more you attach to those, the deeper these these rivets, these spaces are inside yourself. And so basically by doing this practice, what happens is those come up like like geysers, right? The stuff that's inside of those cracks just kind of comes to the surface. And it can come up as, for me, being super pissed off on day four or you know laughing on day five, whatever. And on day five or six, that was the first time in my life that I had seen the hyper chatting, chattery monkey mind thing, mm-hmm. the thing that's just kind of always doing that. Mm-hmm. It's the first time I saw it outside of myself. And I could literally see it, you know, it felt like the days five, six, seven, it got a little bit further away, whereas a few feet away from me. And every time it would start to chatter, I would be like, shh, just take it easy. And it would calm right down, you know? Um, and that was a big, that was a big thing for me because I, I saw that all this kind of narrative, all this stuff that happens in there is literally the mind and not myself, you know? And there was a whole bunch of other, you know, family things and love and, you know, self-worth and humankind and everything that kind of comes up in the in the sit. And from there, it kind of kickstarted after that, shortly after I had found Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, 
and I've just been interested in his stuff primarily since then. There's been a few other teachers that I think are are amazing and they resonate with me with some ways, but for some reason him, mm-hmm. his voice, mm-hmm. his presence, yeah. his whole thing yeah. is the thing that I really relate to. How did you find Thich Nhat Hanh? I don't know. It might have been um it might have been a book that was given to me, a name. It was one of those things that just kind of floated and I actually don't remember. And I have in two thousand so actually on that last tour, that was one of the amazing things I got to do in 2015. Um, I played some festival in in Europe somewhere, I forgot where I was. And I had scheduled, before I went out on that tour, I scheduled a, uh, a week staying at Plum Village. Um, so I brought all like my Pelican cases and stuff. Plum and actually, Village is, is headquarters for Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, By the yeah. way, we should explain that totally. Thich, who he is. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese Zen master. Mm-hmm. Um, who Martin Luther King nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, during the Vietnam War. Yep. Um, and he's written a hundred books. And uh, I found him the same way you threw a book. Mm-hmm. And he is an amazing teacher uh, who, yeah, everything about him, his voice, his words, his, the way he delivers mm-hmm. his wisdom totally. is very convincing yeah. and very helpful. Peaceful Yoda. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you were a you were at his headquarters in France and called Plum Village. Yeah, I, I I don't remember the full exact thing, but playing that show literally the next morning, I must have flown to France, um, took a train down there, um, and then took a a bus or something. It's a really small town where they are, you know. Yeah. Um, waited for one of the monks to come pick me up because they usually come there but nobody was coming. So I ended up going to a restaurant and her son ended up driving me up there. Um, and yeah, stayed for a week, just met people, Dharma talks, meditation, walking meditation, all that stuff, played ping pong. Saw a whole bunch of monks playing a soccer game, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of it, yeah, packed up my stuff, Pelican cases, and went and played a show in Transylvania at a castle. Did you do walking meditation with Thich Nhat Hanh? No, he wasn't there when I was there. Oh, he wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you went to Deer Monastery in Escondido when he was there? Uh, no, no, I've actually yeah. never been in the same place with him. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, I would would have liked to for sure. Um, but yeah, I've been to Deer Park a um, handful of times. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I went there because of, you know, what I got from Plum Village and how awesome and amazing it is, um, you know, going for walks in the they have a lot of walking paths out there, yeah. which is really awesome. Yeah. Which kind of just yeah. bring that back and then sharing Deer Park with other friends out here. Basically, yeah. anytime I go down there, I try to bring friends with me if they're up for it. Nice. Yeah. So do they guide you in terms of how to meditate uh, at Deer Park or Plum Village or they just leave you on your own? No, no, they do in the most basic kind of sense, mainly focusing on breathing. Yeah. You know, I think, because yeah. um, the breathing stuff, it's from what I gather, my most limited sense of all this is that it's it's really, really, really deep. And I think you're going to be constantly going back to it no matter what age you are, yeah. right? Yeah. And my my understanding from my perspective is that as long as you're alive, we're mammals, and as long as we're alive, we could lose both arms and both legs, um, but you'll always be breathing. So it's a tool that you have at your disposal to constantly go back to no matter what's happening in your life, right? right? Um, and that's really the way I see it. It's like a, you can constantly strengthen that ability to tap into the present moment through your breath, um, no matter the zaniness or intensity on the outside, you know? Right. I think they, that's why they, so even if some of the teachings might seem really basic and some of the times yeah. I've been there, yeah. they're just focusing on that. 
Yeah. It's for a reason, I think. Yeah. Well, they say the instructions are simple, but the practice is not so simple. Yeah, yeah, right? totally. So do you ever listen to sounds? Is that ever a part of your meditation? Either internal, external, or both? Um, no, I um, I have some friends that do TM, um, which I know is like a, uh, a word-related thing, right, in tones. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, to a degree. You're repeating a word, a yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I actually haven't too much. I've gotten into meditative states, quote unquote, through listening to stuff or making stuff in my studio where just, you know, one ambient patty type thing and you just kind of sit there and, you know. Um, But actually in my own practice, no. The bell is something that's really beautiful to me, Mm -hmm. but it's not a continual, you know, tone or sound or something like that. Um, I don't know if it's because that's my background and I'm listening to sound all the time that um, I mean, there's a lot of times I'm in the car and I'm not listening to music, you know, or at home and maybe not listening to stuff. So I've never, it's never overly been a part of my practice, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So never, nobody ever introduced that to you? Uh, how do you open up your field of awareness to sound? And I you, guess not. You mean during the practice? Yeah. Um, I mean, with, with singing bowls, for sure. I've been around it, for sure. I've been, you know, crystal bowl meditation things, um, uh-huh. Tibetan bowls, tones, sound baths, that kind of stuff. Right. But in terms of my own particular practice, right. I th- kind of like, I like the feeling of all I need is a pillow. And if I don't have a pillow, then I don't need the pillow either. You know, it's just, just if I can just go with myself and just pay attention to just what's happening, you know? So your retreat where you're plunged into this world for 10 days where you have to meditate for 11 hours and just focus on your breathing. Mm. Now, that was a, that's a pretty radical shift. Mm. And, and most people couldn't do that. I, it takes a lot of concentration. Do you think because you're a musician that you've already refined your powers of concentration that that had something to do with it? I've never thought about it, to be honest. I think most people can do it. I think most people... Usually when, I, when I've when i mentioned it to people, it's like, oof, I couldn't do that. Right. Um, it's either a work thing or that they don't think they could for some other reason. And I don't I don't believe it. I think, because um, it's just you. It's like you're running away from yourself at that point. You know, there's no other, you know, you could get furious at somebody sitting next to you or, you know, somebody's burping or farting or coughing next to you and that's irritating you for some reason, you know, but- it's amazing to me to feel all these feelings and no one said anything to me. For the past three days, no one said anything to me. And for some reason, I'm feeling like screaming right now, you know? Um, I think whatever that is, is the thing that I think people might think that they can't approach that. Perhaps the music has helped me concentrate. Um, I think it's like an adventure though. It feels like a hike in a certain way. It just, it felt more like, oh, here's a crazy mountain. Okay, I'm down to try it. You know, there's gonna be some rivers and some scary parts and some some sunny parts, but uh, it was more like an adventure in a, in a certain kind of way. Kind of like playing at the pyramids. Yeah, yeah, totally, absolutely. I wanted to see how that would how that would be. You know, kind of like being a musician and touring the world just by playing music. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, do you practice on a daily basis now? I uh, ish. I know that I should. And I observe me guilting myself for not every day, but I practice fairly often. If I don't do it in the morning, then I'm catching myself and doing it later. And it could be the simplest of just coming back to the present moment, just really trying to tap into what my body somatically is feeling, 
what might be happening in the present moment, using my ears, tapping into my breath, and just kind of doing doing that as much as possible. Moments of mindfulness right? yeah, yeah. during the day. Yeah, yeah. But do you have a formal sitting practice that you mm-hmm. you do? Yep. But it's uh, formal in the sense I have a pillow and I have a little thing so my ankles aren't on the hard floor. <laughs> so uh-huh. a little, you know, some fabric. Um, and like a little altar space, yeah. Got a picture of Thich Nhat Hanh up there. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you have a little space in your house where mm-hmm. you can sit. Yeah, we moved into, a, uh, my wife and I got a spot two years ago and the intention is to properly make a spot once we make another bedroom. Um, but for now it's like out in the living roomish area, like off to the side, mm-hmm. up against the wall. So you do the majority of the week, would you say that you, you've taken some time to sit down in your in your spot? Yeah, yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. even when you're scoring. Um, that is a part of, that's part of the challenge to be honest. When it's crazy scoring, it's really easy to let go of that and um, exercise. And what I've really focused on making sure I do is keep those up for sure. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really saw that with with touring, at least in my experience, it was really hard to maintain consistency. You know, your diet is all over the place. Your sleep patterns are all over the place. And I have by chance or luck, whatever, fallen into a certain pattern of stuff right now, at least, that I want to kind of make sure I stay on top of that because I actually am home all the time. You know, there's no excuse for me to not do that. So I think it's really important to kind of, for myself to make sure I do. I think that's fantastic. And you're a fantastic model because the pressures that you're under scoring two shows is just, it's pretty unfathomable to to most people um, to be creative like that. Yeah, I think it helps my creativity too. It helps me not be a jerk too. You know, it's like, it helps me make, to not take things personally. If a a showrunner says, hey, can you change this? All that stuff, it kind of keeps me in some equilibrium for sure. I think physical, some physical exercise and meditation is a huge part of not going nuts for me. Yep, both, yep, absolutely. That's great that you can do that. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example for uh, Sylv. And totally. other kids, totally. and, and other young people. What's been awesome about working with with Sil, actually, um, you know, your former student, it's really rad having someone else around. It shows you how you are behaving, you know, and how you are. There's been times I'll, I'll, if I'm complaining about something and I can see how me complaining about something is having an effect on him, I'm like, there's no reason for me to be saying this right now, you know, or generating some little drama or narrative, you know, particularly narratives. If I see myself creating a narrative that doesn't need to be built, I see like, oh, I'm impacting this other human that's in my space now. And I can kind of, in certain ways, it keeps me in check and I can also help to show him potentially a good way to be in this industry and stuff. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, and you say it helps your creativity. Can you articulate that? Do you know how it it helps creativity? Uh, The meditation side? Yeah. Oh, it's just getting, it's the white noise. It's uh, it's kind of a vacuum cleaner for the, for the mind in a certain way, you know? Um, I know I've had a number of ideas come come up as soon as I wake up or very late at night or while I'm meditating or right after I've meditated, for sure. Musical ideas that basically just, that constant chattering in the mind, the monkey mind thing that I was mentioning before, that's just kind of going and it's creating all this this noise and stuff. For me, I feel like meditation helps to keep that, kind of at bay 
and at least clean it out a bit where there's a bit of space. And I think within that space, you have like a fertile ground for things to be able to grow out of, right? Otherwise, there's just so much noise and there's kind of shade blocking the earth and doesn't allow some stuff to kind of grow out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So in that way, it absolutely helps creativity. Nice. Yeah. So a question that I get asked a lot by by young musicians is, well, I'm writing music out of my pain and suffering. That's right. And so if I start meditating, I'll get so peaceful and I won't have any pain anymore. I won't be able to write anymore. That's a, that's a big, have you, you probably heard that too. Oh yeah. I've thought that myself totally in the past. And what did you, what conclusions did you come to? For me, I don't, meditation isn't a way to get away from that. It's, it's like you can't stop rain from happening. Meditation for me is a raincoat. It's like a, there's a way to, it helps me deal with what is happening and sit with what's happening as opposed to freaking out that I'm wet. So I, I actually can completely understand that of the idea of, well, what if I lose my torturedness and all this amazing stuff's coming out of it? What if it goes away, you know? And I get that. I totally get that. And there could be some truth to it. You know, there could be some of the torturedness is a fire that just keeps you creating, but you might not be very happy. You know, you might be living a life where you're making yourself miserable and potentially the people around you miserable as well, you know? I feel from my experience that it's only added to the, the, the life experience I'm having, the space that I'm able to occupy and the, the things I'm wanting to grow and create in my life and be a part of. Um, I only see benefits out of it because some of that torturedness stuff, life will still be painful. Right. Life will still have challenging things right. happen. That rain will still be there, right. but it just allows me to be able to navigate that stuff in a different way. Um, you know, there's the huge difference between reacting and responding to something, you know? Yeah. I feel like before some of these practices, and meditation for me also led into some other things too, you know, that I was re uh, reacting a lot more and I still react, but now I'm getting better and better at just the time it takes for me to catch it and breathe and try to shift, you know, shift my response to it instead of just reacting, right. you know, whatever it is, an email conversation with somebody, somebody pulling in front of you when you're driving, mm -hmm. uh, some music thing not going the right way, whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's a, it's a thing, if you're trying to get to a place, if I was trying to get to a place where I was wanting to eliminate any of all, all those human normal things, living in Western society and surrounded by technology and phones, all that kind of stuff, I'd probably be beating myself up all the time because I would be messing up all the time. It's, it's more just being aware of it and allowing yourself to, to kind of, roll with it and allow it to, the water to kind of roll off, you know? Right. So meditation has helped you in, in so many ways. Oh yeah. And it's helped you live your life so you could keep being creative and you can manage all these different projects because it's helping mm -hmm. you manage the other parts of your life that allows you to be creative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like a, it's a sprinkler that's, that's still working, you know? It's helping, it's helping all of it for sure. And I've found that, um, there is something to be said, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this, just, you know, consuming alcohol, consuming drugs, whatever else it is, um, violence on TV, all that stuff. There is something to be said for the more I sit with myself and meditate and those type of, when I get to those places, the desire to do any of that kind of stuff is really not appealing, you know? Yeah. So I think just in general, since I started doing that, I've just gotten healthier. I hope that the people around me think I'm healthier. Mm -hmm. It's not just some 
some fantasy I've created in my mind, but I see, yeah, genuine benefit from it, you know? Like actual, not that the mind isn't actual, but, you know, tangible, yeah. um, visceral, physical changes in my life that have occurred from some of these shifts, you know? Beautiful. And you say that meditation has led you to other things. Mm -hmm. You said that, did you have anything specific in mind when you said other oh, things? Oh, just, uh, just how anything kind of branches off. I think um, I started intentionally to get back more in my body. Um, I think meditation was a part of that. It wasn't mm -hmm. the thing that just kickstarted me into it, but like I've been climbing for the past four years now, like uh, indoor rock climbing. And I know that that for me in itself is a meditation. It's not sitting on a pillow, you know, but there's a similar type of thing there of patience and, and problem solving. Um, it's just like a different physical experience. Right. I'm getting to experience doing that. And that hasn't been, like I mentioned, the direct cause of it, but I know that meditation has been, it's helped, allowed space in my mind to be like, oh, how about you go meditate also? This is, I mean, sorry, uh, go exercise also. Yeah. This is healthy for you. Take time to do it, you know? Right, that's why you made that analogy with hiking. You said it was like hiking. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Totally. Okay, that explains it. Yeah, yeah. Two questions remaining. Um, one is, you talked about making music and being in a kind of meditative state at times. Mm -hmm. um, can you elaborate? What are the similarities and what are the differences between being in a meditative state when you're in the moment of performing or making music, creating, you're totally in the moment? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about that? I, or have you, can you talk about that at all? Is this something you really haven't looked at? Like the similarities and the differences between the two experiences. Honestly, it's not something I've really looked at, to be honest. It kind of just happens. Um, it's the times, I'll tell you what, what's the opposite of it is, you know, when I'm looking at emails and emailing people and scheming and like, you know, scheming in a positive way, but right. how can I do whatever to strategize and what are, any of the stuff that, that comes in there? Because I think especially nowadays doing music, you have to be like multifaceted, person trying to do a bunch of different quote unquote business related things, you know, right. that feels like the opposite. And luckily I'm able to like on my, on my, um, my computer screen, I have a piece of paper there that says, breathe, you're using a computer. Um, <laughs> at least you're able to kind of tap back into that in the middle of that kind of craziness. Um, but the actual music making, it's, I honestly don't think about it. It's just, you tap into it. And it's just present moment stuff without really thinking about it. Something that just feels very natural. And you know, if I'm doing something strategically, then I know I'm a little bit outside of it. If it's just kind of happening mm -hmm. and it just feels good and it feels, you know, life affirming in some kind of way, um, even if it's super heavy, mm -hmm. you know, I love the idea of really heavy, positive music, mm -hmm. um, then I know I'm in it. But if I'm, if it's some kind of strategy, then I'm slightly out of it. Mm-hmm. I was funny when you said breathe. You're in the on the computer, yeah, yeah. Because the takeoff on the Thich Nhat Han book, "Breathe, You Are Alive." Mm -hmm. Totally right. right. That's funny. Um, before we get into the last question, which is feeling harmonic. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that um, friends that meditate. Do you know other musicians who meditate? Where are you in touch with them, or were they influential? Or what's your experience with um, that? I'm sure I know and am friends with meditate. Uh, like one person in particular, my friend, uh, Justin Breda, he's from um, this group, the Glitch Mob. He's an avid um, TM TM guy and mm -hmm. he's gone to down to Deer Park with me. He's, huh. he's really excited to vi uh, visit Plum Village. Um, 
I actually got married in August out in the south of France, and we were hoping to do it around that time frame, but it just didn't work. But he's really keen to go down there. We speak about it a lot. Yeah, I have another friend, uh, Robert Koch. He's a, a German um, friend of mine. He definitely does it. I have to say Justin's probably the main one I talk to about it though, the most. Okay. I'm sure I have friends that do, yeah. it's, but it's not just part of the main right. discussion. Or I might have less friends than I <laughs> realize that are doing, like musician friends that are yeah. doing it, you know? So it's interesting that he does TM, but he wants to, he's curious about technology. Oh, yeah. and, he's curious about all things um, adventuring the mind and kind of diving in. Yeah, yeah. the whole psychedelic side of things to, yeah. to uh, transcendental meditation, to other types of meditation, to everything. I'm sure he's the type of guy like he'll be doing, you know, extreme like um, waterfall, like he's standing in like ice cold waterfalls <laughs> just to have some type of crazy experience, you know, which is actually yeah. kind of interesting to me too, but yeah. totally. So feeling harmonic. I feel harmonic, yep. A feel harmonic. Yeah, it's kind of like a play on feel harmonic. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. a thick me. I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, oh, that's cool. So that's for deaf, young deaf people. That's yeah, a program yeah. for young deaf people that you created mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about how you came to create this why and how it works a little bit totally um so i'm forgetting the day also but it was right around the time frame when the that last album had come out soul around 2015 mm -hmm. i had done a show in 2010 or 11 i want to say mm -hmm. um with this um record label called Brain Feeder and as sure. like an offshoot of a bunch of different creative people working um, with them. Um, we did a thing in a movie theater, Downtown Independent, where some musicians, I, I was one of them, brought in our stuff and then some people that work in visuals brought in their stuff and we did like a live um, musical visual thing where they were using the actual movie screen to project all their stuff while we were doing music in the theater. And it went really well and it was really, really fun. We brought in like extra sound and stuff. So it was kind of, banging and everything in there. And I had an idea after that, well, what if we brought in kids to come check this out? Mm -hmm. um, and part of that show, there's this company called Subpack. They make these yeah. you know, vibrating packs you can put on chairs and you plug in um, audio into it and the audio goes through the pack and you can feel a lot of the sub frequencies in the pack. Right. I think the and, person that created that is deaf, I've, I've heard. Oh, okay. One of the people, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and um, we brought in 10 of those into the show. And I thought about like, what well, wouldn't it be cool to bring in kids here? Mm -hmm. And it quickly turned into like, what about um, deaf, hard of hearing kids to bring them to the movie theater and have a bunch of these packs and have them experience something in a movie theater with these things on, you know? And um, I just, I reached out to a few schools, spoke to a couple of principals and quickly realized that um, bringing kids somewhere is a whole crazy thing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole, like a field trip. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize now looking back what they had to deal with by just taking us on field trips. Right. But it's a whole thing with buses and forms and all this kind of stuff. Sure. <clears throat> and um, parental authorization and everything. So I said, okay, well, what about bringing this type of thing to them? So I, I have one of these packs and I made a song, quote unquote, that's about a minute and a half long. And I didn't use my speakers, my monitors at all. I just used the pack. And basically I didn't want to just make a song that maybe some kids could feel that I wanted more of a conversation happening. So we um, actually just, at that point it was just me, where I was, I basically made a minute and a half long thing where the bass lines were talking to each other. So imagine, you know, I'm sitting in my chair at my house, feeling this thing vibrating on my back. Right. And on my keyboard, I'm basically playing bass notes that feel like characters talking to each other, you know? So I play like, bum, 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 
boom, 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 almost kind of Charlie Brown teacher kind of thing, but with bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, had them talking back and forth and kind of making jokes and stuff. And I had a friend take that audio and he he made an animation to it. Um, and we went back and forth on the way the animation would look and everything. And he did a, an amazing job. He's from the studio called BMO, B-E-M-O. And um, I took that animation and the uh, 30 of the packs, subpack um, lent them to me for, for the setup. And they helped me um, set them up. And we had kids from this deaf, hard of healing, hard of healing uh, elementary school come into the, I don't know, so like the lunchroom or wherever we were at the spot, but they all came in. We had 30 of them set up and all the kids came in and sat down and basically first watched this minute and a long half animation. And so they're all feeling the stuff on their backs. Right. And I brought in a little MIDI controller um, where at the, it was at the front of all of them. So one of the kids could come up and play the keys on it. And at first they were just triggering different scenes and those different scenes of that animation they had just seen would trigger little phrases of bass, bass uh-huh. line so they could feel it in their backs. Uh-huh. And then um, other kids can come up and they I switched it basically to just sign waves so they could just play notes and everything they were playing there, all the kids behind them could feel it on their packs too. Um, and one of the amazing things I learned that day actually was um, I expected them to play for some reason, like I was picturing harmonics and chords might be interesting and um, or even just like octaves. And it ended up being that they just love to mash on them. So hmm. they ended up because uh, one of the people that works there was explaining to me, they just equate high energy to happiness. Um, so just by hitting all the keys, they were just sending out a wave of like, and all right. the kids were feeling that and right. everybody start smiling. They can you know? really feel it. Yeah, 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 totally. And like, as an example, if if um, someone in that community were to hear, um, to feel the feeling of like death metal with like super fast kick drums and like really, really heavy, fast stuff, they would just assume that was a happy song because it was so fast. Oh, so okay. so slower things uh, are would probably be sadder, you know? They're a bit more, makes this sense. feels slow, so it must be sad. That makes this sense. This is faster, so it must be happy, right? Yeah. So they would end up doing that and just kind of mashing on all the keys. And yeah, that was something we we documented and uh, ended up doing a couple of those uh, those presentations at a couple of different spots. Um, and the age ranges were from, I don't even know, I think it was like seven, six or seven to to 15 and then some, parents and you know principals and stuff um and that was really awesome to do it felt so good um and but also at that same time is when some of the touring stuff was happening and it was really hard to do both of them Mm -hmm. and i was feeling myself not being able to fully commit to either thing Mm -hmm. and kind of in this this place of like um wanting to do this but not having the resources and stability and foundation to be able to do it so once the scoring stuff started that's allowed me to have a foundation now where, you know, since the scoring stuff and those kind of transitional phases, now I have a house, I have a studio, I'm married, and and I actually have the the resources and space to be able to come back and actually focus on this, which is a huge part of what I'm what I'm wanting to do. And the dream is to take different types of tech. Um, because before it was just relying on this one piece of technology. And I started speaking with a few different people about just developing different types of things that we can integrate into there where it's just like a, a somatic physical thing. You get to play with sound happening in different objects in different ways. And at this point now, I'm actually really keen about the idea of opening it up to everybody, to have a kid a kid that's deaf or hard of hearing sitting next to a kid that's not and have them experience their own versions of it would be awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a terrific thing that you're doing. 
And as, as a matter of fact, my daughter, Caroline Wolf, as a professional interpreter for the deaf. Mm. So I had her check out your site to get her feedback. Oh, awesome. And um, she said, it's super cool. What you're doing is just super cool. She oh, read deaf people that she knows just love that kind of thing. Being able to feel the music yeah, yeah. with the sub packs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they love that. Oh, awesome. So that's, uh, that's a great thing that you're doing. One of many great things that you do. Oh, cheers. And um, it's been amazing meeting you. And you as well. getting to know you uh, a little bit, and it's I've learned a lot. Well, I, I have as well. I appreciate the opportunity. And um, thank you so much. Wish you continued success. Now tell us, you have an album out now. Mm -hmm. What's it called? Uh, Motions Like These. Motions Like These? Yeah, it's um, Eskimo and Kira Kira. It's a uh, first collab thing I've actually released since the Amon Tobin thing. Um, and it was something, I mean, we've been working on it for five years. When I first went out to Iceland Airwaves, we recorded it and then it's just gradually, she lives out there. She works in Pro Tools, I work in Logic. So it's been a very patient, uh, long time thing of every time she comes out here, working on a little bit. Um, people can find this on Bandcamp? You have uh, some vinyl copies left? Yeah, there's there's still vinyl copies on Bandcamp. Um, it's on Spotify and, and on Apple Spotify. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And what's your uh, social media? Do you want to give out your social media handle? Sure. On Instagram, it's just Eskimo. Um, I think the O might be a zero. But yeah, Eskimo, if you type in Eskimo to there or Twitter, you'll find me. Okay. Um, I think I'm kind of the, the only one. Twitter, I think is Eskimo Welder. Okay. So thank you so much, Brendan. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sir. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care. I really love that conversation with Eskimo. And you can hear his great scoring work on season five of Billions and season four of 13 Reasons Why, in case you haven't been following those shows. And he also has uh, twins coming in February, so people can send their good energy because he's going to need it. And I need to thank some people who made this possible. I'd like to thank Lonnie Ronaldo for her editing chops and the great interns Jane Yi and Chase Crocha. And of course, my extremely talented co-producer, Hannah Bowers. So we'd really appreciate it. If you took the time to leave the podcast a review and a rating, and hopefully it's a high rating, and please share it with your friends and anyone you think would benefit from listening to us. You can follow, subscribe to us at, at Wolf and Tune on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And so until next time, we hope you can stay in a higher octave and stay in tune.